Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Honor widows who were truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She, who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been a wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. The late pastor, author, and uh, seminary president, R.C. Sproul, once wrote, Christians are to be kind and compassionate, helping those who are truly in need. At the same time, the church is no place for charity for the idle. We must seek to wisely assist those who cannot support themselves, especially fellow church members. We cannot be enablers of those who can work but do not want to do so. And as we give, our, as we give of our time and money to help others, let us seek to do so wisely, helping only those who are truly in need. You have heard me say it before, and I will say it again and again and again. Theology matters. Your theology matters. What you understand about God, what you understand about mankind in light of who God is, what you understand about the church, and what you understand about salvation, theologically, every bit of that matters. Because your theology and what you believe about those things will drive how you live your life. It will drive how you worship God. It will drive how you relate even to the world and even the church itself. 
Your theology will determine how you will walk out your individual faith. Your theology will determine your expectations of other people and your expectations of the church itself. And even if you don't like the subject of theology, as my wife used to say back in the day, theology, 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 all you ever talk about is theology, right? Even if you don't like the subject of theology, you have, whether you know it or not, a theology, an understanding of God that determines how you live your life. And there is no clear example of this in the outworkings of your theology and how we help other people. In fact, one of the clearest examples of how theology drives our lives is how individuals and churches as a whole understand and operate what is known as ministries of mercy or, or ministries that are created to help other people who are truly in need. And I want you to hear me very carefully and clearly. As we go along, I want you to come back to this statement and remember this is what I said, so I'm not misunderstood. It is true, we as Christians are to help other people. We are to help other people in need. The Scriptures make that abundantly clear that it is our obligation to help people. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will repay him for his deeds. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Deuteronomy 15, 11, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. Proverbs 22, verse 9, Whoever is bountiful, who has a bountiful eye, will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. And even Jesus, in Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40, says this. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked or cl and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The scripture makes it clear that if we are in Christ, we are to seek to help those who are truly in need. And we're to do that corporately as a church because together we can do more as we leverage our resources together to accomplish more. But we are also to do that individually as well. All of us, all of you are individually called to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to protect the innocent, to look after the orphan, to care for the widow. And so it is indeed true that we are to show the love of Christ to the world by meeting people's needs who are truly in need through ministries of mercy. But... But there is a right way and there is a lot of wrong ways to do this. There's a right and biblical way that we as Christians are to go out in the world and help other people. And there's a lot of wrong ways and unbiblical ways to go about this as well. And this is what our text is about today. The right way to help those who are truly in need. 
I'm going to tell you right now, this is an area that many, many churches and many individual Christians simply get wrong for various reasons. They might have good intentions. They might truly desire to, to help. They might even desire to, to honor God, but they don't do so in a way that is biblical or even really in the long term helpful. They don't go about helping people in a way that God calls us to help them. In fact, many people don't even think about this subject from a biblical perspective, right? Most people's belief about helping other people is informed by their emotions or by their, their experience or by the cultural demand, the cultural demands at large right? or their upbringing rather than what the actual text of Scripture tells us and commands for us to do about this. And what this reveals is really how shallow many people's understanding and theology is. It reveals how shallow their view of God is. It reveals how shallow their view of the church is. It reveals how shallow even their view of mankind can be because, because their theology drives their actions. And what this means is, if we are going to get this right, if we're really going to honor God in this area that we are commanded to, to obey, if we're going to fulfill the command that God has given us to take care of the truly needy, we must first start with a proper theology, especially a proper theology of the church and especially a proper theology of God, which, by the way, is why we are in 1 Timothy, right? is because we are wanting to grow as a church in our understanding of what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church is to do. We need to grow in our theology of the church. Secondly, we need to build our understanding of ministries of mercy and how to operate them from the scriptures themselves. We need to have a scriptural understanding of, of helping other people and what that means and what that looks like because sadly, far too many people right, who sincerely desire to help build their efforts to help on how they feel, on their emotions, and the cultural demands, and what it seems to be in vogue nowadays, and what everybody else on Facebook is telling us to do, which leads to a widespread misunderstanding of what the church itself is actually for. The third thing we must do to help the truly needy is we need to learn to operate in wisdom. We need to exercise wisdom when it comes to helping the needy. We need to be wise when we help other people because the truth is none of us, not any of us in this room for sure, have unlimited resources, which means we need to be careful who we help and when. And that wisdom must come from an informed theology, and it must come from a biblical understanding. It also must come from us getting counsel from other people and other believers and other ministers who have been where we are. We must have a proper theology of God and of the church and have a scriptural understanding of ministries of mercy. And we must exercise the greatest wisdom in how we help the truly needy among us. Now, why? Why would we emphasize the need for wisdom in, in scripture and theology? Why can't we just help people? Right? Well, it's because there are three major problems. Three major problems that plague ministries of mercy. And the first one is the obvious one. It's abuse, right? I think that this is the one that we're familiar with, right? The fact is that people abuse the help that is given by the church. People abuse it all the time. 
There are people that will stop in off the streets, right, who decided yesterday they're going to drive from San Francisco to New York and they stopped in here Sunday morning in hopes that they'll get a sermon and then get some money out of somebody in the church. Right? That's just the way people, some people operate. That's just how it, and if you've been here very long, you've seen it a thousand times. Right? People will take advantage. There are people who simply just see the church and its members as a way to have, you know, a way to live their life without having to take responsibility. They see these ministries of mercy as a way of getting stuff for free. Right? And we've all seen this. And we've all become tolerant to a certain degree of that. We just kind of expect it, right? But there are people who certainly use and abuse the loving and generous nature of Christians in the church. By the way, right, that is the one argument that, that atheists always seem to struggle with the most. Right? I've, I've heard one atheist talk about how dangerous you know, Christians are, and another atheist stood up and said, wait a minute, you got that all wrong. The most generous people in the world, the most loving people in the world are Christians. Right? That is the truth. But I want you to understand, there's another side of this abuse, abuse as well, and one that we don't think of very often, but it's there. And that is, there are those who are in the ministries of mercy that oftentimes are the abusers. There are people who volunteer to help because they simply just want recognition. They, they want people to notice them and look at me and look how important I am and look what I'm doing. And there are those people who, who help and volunteer because they're hoping that they can get some type of material benefit out of it. They kind of figure out like, hey, if I help, then there might be some leftover stuff and I can have all that stuff if I spend my time and volunteer. And there are those who simply volunteer because they're trying to build relationships with other people that they can exploit. Right? This, by the way, is why we must always be careful in how we let people volunteer and help. I had somebody get offended with me at one point when I said, if you want to help in this area, you have to, first of all, affirm our statement of faith. You've got to become a member, and then we've got to give you a criminal background check. And they didn't like that. I'm sorry. That's just the way things are. That's the world we live in, right? There are people who will pose to be good people and who want to volunteer and who will want to help in a certain area simply because they know they can get in a position of leadership and authority and then build exploitive relationships. And so we must always be careful there. Abuse comes in all forms, by the way. Again, this is one of the reasons why we need proper wisdom in theology. The second problem that plagues ministries of mercy is really just a faulty theology of salvation. I'm going to tell you, this is the one that frustrates me the most. Right? There, there's something pervasive in the American church that wants to deny that salvation is the work of God. Uh, we certainly participate in it by His grace. There's no question about that. But the work that gets done is by Him. Right? There's something in the American church that wants to believe that we are the agents that bring people to salvation. That we somehow are the ones who save the lost. And this is reflected in, in people's language, in expressions. And I'm telling you, these are expressions I have used before. So I don't want you to think I'm picking on anybody but me. right? But expressions like, well... I led, that per I led that person to the Lord, right? I went out and won souls. I brought them to Jesus. I led them to Christ. Now realize, I want you to hear me. I've used those same expressions to explain some of my evangelistic activity, but what we need to realize is it's still a very man-centered view of how salvation actually works. 
Now hear me. We are certainly part of the means that God uses to accomplish His work. By His grace, He has decided to work through us. That we are tools within His hands, but it is His hand that does the work. God uses us and works through us. And as such, we ought to always be on mission doing our part to do what? Sow the seed, love the people, and then pray for God to change their hearts and never give up on them. That's the part that we play. We are to tell the truth of the gospel to everyone we can. We are to let them see the light of Christ in our love, in our actions, and our attitudes. And we're to pray for them. We are to pray for God to do the only thing the thing that only God can do, which is to change their hardened hearts and then never give up on them because God can save anyone at any time, at any point in their history. But make no mistake, we don't save anyone. We don't have the power to save anyone. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 1 says this, he goes, For I'm, ashamed, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it... The gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God to save, not you, not me. God is the one who works salvation, and He can work salvation anyone He wants, anytime He wants, and He can do it with or without your help. Which means God doesn't need you to save someone, but He gracefully and graciously uses you as an instrument in His hand to bring others to Christ. As uh, C.S. Lewis once said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And the reason why this is important is because how you understand salvation, hear me, how you understand salvation will affect how you approach how you help other people. Because if you think you're personally responsible to save someone, and if, it, if you believe it's up to you to lead someone to the Lord, and you're not really trusting in God's sovereign work, you will labor under the assumption that your actions are the determining factor of whether or not somebody will actually come to faith and get saved. It's a dangerous proposition, brothers and sisters. Because that creates an impossible standard of legalism that you can't live up to. You can't live up to that standard. Because now it's incumbent upon you to always be doing the right thing and to always be in a good mood and to always be loving and to always be doing what people are asking of you. Otherwise, you might turn them away from Jesus and they might not ever get saved then. Which means you will always need to be nice and never upset them. And you will always need to be there no matter what happens no matter how you feel about it, because if you don't do what they want, then they might never come to Jesus. Do you understand? That's an impossible burden for you to bear. And with that understanding that people have, it leads to them to believe that's the, how the church should be as well. They bring that understanding to the church. Well, man, if we don't pay their electric bill, they're going to think that we don't love them. And then they might never come back to church. And then they're never going to come to Jesus. Well, if we don't, right? If pastor keeps talking about their old religion that way, it's going to offend them. And then they're going to be upset and they might never come back. And man, if they don't ever come back, they're never going to hear about Jesus and they're never going to get saved. 
if we don't take them to the grocery store every week, if we don't, you know, take them to all their doctor's appointments, if we don't, you know, take the time, right, to, to do what they want us to do, if we just finally even just get tired and tell them, hey, it's time for you to stand up on your own feet and get a job, that might hurt their feelings. And man, they'll just stop coming to church and they won't ever get saved then. That thinking actually is pervasive throughout our entire Christian culture. But not only is that a flawed understanding of salvation, it's a standard of behavior that nobody can live up to. Nobody can live up to it. If anybody's salvation is dependent upon a Christian treating them right and, 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 and never hurting their feelings at all ever, no one's ever getting saved. It's not, I'm just telling you, right? I don't care if you're the sweetest person like Diana Weiss, right? At some point, she's going to upset somebody or offend them, right? And if, and if, and if, she, if that's the condition for, for people to get saved, guess what? No one's getting saved. And let alone them come talk to me, right? It's a standard you can't live up to because you and I will never be able to do enough for someone else to get saved. We will not be able to be convincing enough in the way that we treat people that will cause them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. You and I don't have the power to change someone's heart and bring anyone to Christ. Salvation is a supernatural work of the triune God. Now, we certainly participate in that, and we're to be faithful in the things that we're called to do. Sow the seed, love the people, pray that God changes their heart, and not give up on them. Right? But we're not the ones that bring them to salvation. God is the one. And because of that, we need to walk in wisdom in how we help people. Now, the third problem with ministries of mercy might surprise you. And that is idolatry. It is the idolatry of the ministries of mercy. I got a brother up here who's been in church a long time and he's shaking his head, yep, because he's seen exactly what I'm talking about. There are people and churches who worship at the idol of helping other people. Right? In the last 25 years especially, many churches have begun to change their approach to ministry and many churches have begun to focus on helping other people. And I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me carefully. That is not a bad thing, right? It is a good thing that we are out to help people. We ought to seek to help others to the best of our abilities. We ought to seek to not live selfishly as, as we have a tendency to do at times. We ought to seek to alleviate suffering and we ought to work towards standing up for those who are voiceless. In fact, those are all good things. In fact, that is the, the command of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We're reminded, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What a wonderful scripture, right? And, and that scripture has become the rallying cry for many churches, right? And many movements in the 21st century, right? And the church at large began to shift its focus in that direction, but it did so, unfortunately, at the expense of orthodoxy and at the expense of the ministry of the Word of God. You see, it became about orthopraxy, or right action, over orthodoxy, right teaching. And people began to believe helping people was more important than what you believed about God. In fact, that sentiment is so Pervasive. I once saw a, a meme that, that posted, it was a church, like a church sign that said, the nice atheist is closer to Jesus than the mean Christian. Right? 
which is completely untrue, right? I mean, we know, right? But I mean, I mean, but but there, but there are like lots, like thousands of Christians that are liking that. Yeah, yeah, we need to be different. So you obviously now are favoring right action over right doctrine, which, by the way, is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that you can't do it without the help of God in the first place. Right? And suddenly, the mark of a successful, growing, and spiritually healthy church was, look at what we're doing. We've collected and distributed so many tons of food. Look at us. Look at, a, look at all the donations we've brought in of truckloads of clothes. Look at, look at all we've done to do, you know, to do these things in the community. Well, look at what we're doing around the world. By the way, those are all good things, right? But the thing is, it's been about this. See, we're the real church. We're the real Christ followers. Because unlike all those people who just want to talk about doctrine and, and theology all the time, right? because we're doing stuff. We're, we're, we're doing stuff. Look at us. Look at what we're doing. And then these groups begin to look down their self-righteous noses to those who are not doing so much because of limited resources or those churches who are really trying to give proper attention to God and His ordained mode of worship and to the doctrines of the church that actually lead to life. In fact, as I prepared for this message, I looked at a website of one of the most influential megachurches in our country and on the very front page of the website was this message. Big letters. Life is complicated. We want to help. That's the message of the website. Nothing about Christ, nothing about salvation, nothing about the hope that, that, that Christ and, and, and the gospel offers you. Nothing about your greatest need. It's just, hey, we're here to help. Look at us. And, and, and to, to make that even worse, the background video that played underneath those letters was this video of people busy in the church carrying boxes and, and you know, obviously mobilized to do all kinds of, of stuff because they're helping. And when you look further at the website, when you look and see, because it doesn't take very long to see what websites, what churches are about by their website, it was just continually bragging about, well, look at what we've done over here and how many tons of food we gathered and how much this. And look at all these other you know, benevolent organizations we're aligned with around the world and look at, what, look at us. And their whole website was just about what they're doing and how cool they are and how relevant we are. And they avoided all kinds of church lingo just to, just to seem more, to be less threatening to people. And then at the very bottom of the page, I had to look, I had to search, scroll down, very tiny letters. It said at the very bottom of the page, there was a hyperlink, it says, church overview. So I don't know about you, but when I look at other churches, the first thing I'm looking for is don't show me the fluff, show me what you believe. Then I know at least the direction that you're coming from, right? So I go down and I click, it says, church overview. And then when, when, you, when you scroll down, you finally see a very tiny little statement of faith. But before you get to the statement of faith, you get to the mission statement. Right? Big letters, mission statement, which is how, which is we're here to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in life and in mission of our church. Again, not anything about the gospel and helping people to come to know Christ. Right? And then the strategy, I'm looking, okay, now I'm interested. Okay, what's the strategy? Well, our strategy is to endear our community by ensuring people that we're here. And we're happy, and they're happy that we're here. And that they're better off that we're here. What? Okay. Uh, 
The next part of the strategy is we inspire our audience by creating an experience to cause people to say, I'm glad I came. I can't wait to come back. And then the last part of the strategy was we equip our core by instilling and training students and adults to give, lead, and invite. Again, nothing about disciple-making, nothing about evangelism, nothing about sharing the hope of Christ. Notice that it's all a man-centered point of view. It's about us and what we're doing. And then finally, you get to this short little bullet list of, of beliefs. And when I say short, I'm talking about very short, and they're written in such a way that are very broadly interpreted, carefully crafted not to use any type of theological language that might cause somebody to go, I'm not listening to that guy. By the way, this church is pastored by a man who said that churches, that Christians ought to unhitch their theology from the Old Testament. And he's also said the Bible doesn't really say anything because it's just a collection of ancient documents. And he's also said that the New Testament doesn't really say much about sexual ethics. And he even said at one point, in fact, this last year, that small churches that are not really experiencing huge numerical growth ought to sell their properties and then just give their money to bigger churches who can then plant new churches in their place. And he continually points people to what they've done, this proof that they are truly following Christ. They are real Christians because they're helping so many people, which, again, brothers and sisters, is idolatry. The Christian life, hear me, please. The Christian life is not about helping other people. Now hear me all the way through, okay? But the Christian life is not about helping other people. The Christian life is not about you helping People. Your greatest, the Christian life is about your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is that you are a sinner in rebellion to a holy and just and righteous God, and no matter what you do on your own, even for other people, will not change that. The Christian life is not about helping other people, it is about following Christ because He is your only hope. It's about seeing your need for Him and turning to Him in faith and repentance and trusting in Him with your entire life and following Him wherever He leads you. Because again, He and He alone is your hope. That is what the Christian life is about. It's about turning to Christ by faith and placing all your hope and trust in Him and following Him wherever He leads you to go. That is what the Christian life is about. And then helping people is a natural byproduct of that. The desire within you to help other people, the desire to obey the word of God and help other people is the byproduct of your faith in Christ. The Christian life is about trusting in and following Christ. And the outworking of, of that life is a willingness and a desire to help other people. It is begin, it's growing in love with God and things that God loves. And guess what? God loves other people. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because you were trusting in Christ, not because you are a good person doing things for other people. Right? You're not a Christian because you help. You help because you're a Christian. You, you understand the difference there, right? It's the order of our priorities, the order of where our hearts are. But so many Christians in churches have bought into the idolatry of ministries of mercy, believing that, that they're helping other people some way justifies them. And it becomes about, look at us, look at us. 
Look at our church. Look at what we're doing. Look at how awesome we are instead of going, look at Christ. Look at Christ and what he's done for you. Now, the truth is we are to help other people, especially those who are truly needy. But we must do so in a way the Word of God prescribes, in a way that honors God, in a way that reflects the biblical understanding of the church. And that, by the way, is what the text is about today. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And please understand, this is going to go pretty fast. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Dude, last week took an hour to preach on two verses, and now we're just now getting started out in one verse out of 14. We're going to be here all day. No, I, it's not going to happen. Promise. Promise. It will go quick. So turn with me to verse 3. Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. And again, notice the expression here, honor widows. The word honor here is a Greek word that it can be used to mean honor or show proper respect for sure. And that's what we typically think of when we think of honor, to honor someone. But it also is a word that can mean to take care of someone, to, to meet their needs. And that, by the way, is the point that Paul is making. When he says honor widows, he's saying take care of them, that, that the church has a responsibility to take care of widows, right? which means the church has a responsibility to meet the needs of those who are truly needy, physical needs, financial needs, whatever, right? He says to take care of these women, which, by the way, is in alignment with what we've been talking about, our obligation to meet the needs and take care of the needy. Paul says take care of the widow, but, but, but why does he specifically say widows? Why widows? Well, because widows and orphans were among the most vulnerable groups of people in that culture. They were the most helpless people in the culture. Widows, if their husbands had died, were at the mercy of a number of different people. You see, if a woman's husband died at that time, she was not the one who inherited his estate. His sons were. Particularly the oldest son got the lion's share. Right? He got the double portion, which means he was the head of the household, and what he said was the law. And so he was either dependent upon her on that oldest son, and it might not even have been her son, because he might have had a different wife. Which he was dependent on, on, on the oldest son, or she was dependent upon the dowry that she came into the marriage with. You see, at that time, there was a dowry given by the family that went with her and was part of the husband's estate. And when he died, that was still hers. And either, hopefully, it was enough for her to be sufficiently well-off to be able to live off of for the rest of her life, or she took that dowry back to her parents and they accepted her back in the home, or she took that dowry and found another husband and got married again. Otherwise, right? With, without the oldest son's grace and without a sufficient dowry, she was literally destitute. And we're talking about living in a culture where there is no government aid for those who are poor. It just simply didn't exist. And the people who survived in those times who were really destitute were those who, were, who begged enough and scraped enough by the generosity of those people who just felt compassion for them. There was no compulsory um, you know, uh, welfare or anything like that. Now, in any of these cases, these widows were very vulnerable to other people, even the ones who had a dowry. They became easy prey for those who would seek to take financial gain, uh, financial advantage of them. 
All sorts of people were looking to come in and to, to, uh, to minister to widows for a price. In fact, if you remember Mark chapter 12, Jesus warned himself. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feast who devour widows' houses. Even the most respected people in the Jewish community were still known for taking financial advantage of of widows because they were very vulnerable people. Widows were particularly vulnerable, especially those who didn't have living parents to go back to, right? Or didn't have adult children that they could live with to take care of them. These were the really, truly needy. And so widows represent for us those who truly are in need. But notice Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. He adds the adjective, truly. Let that sink in for a minute. Paul says to take care of widows, but the only ones you're going to take care of are truly widows. Brothers and sisters right here, this is one of the most important parts of this entire text. This is actually the point of this entire text. This is one of the most important parts of Scripture, by the way, with respect to how we as a church are going to minister to the needy. Paul says to help widows who are truly widows. Or how about this? Help the needy who were actually truly needy. Because let's just be honest. Let's just be real. There are people who are needy that are truly needy, and there are people who are needy who maybe aren't quite so truly needy. You understand the difference, right? You see, Paul writes this to Timothy, not to remind him to take care of the needy, right? That's just part of it. That's part of the Christian life. He didn't have to tell him to do that. He already knew to do that. We're to take care of the needy. So Paul is not saying take care of the needy. He's saying be careful and distinguish between those who are truly needy and those who are not truly needy. That's why he says to help those who are truly widows. In fact, the word that he truly, he, gets, he uses it three times to describe the widows he's talking about. The widows that he expects that the church to take care of. Honor widows who are truly widows. Verse 3, verse 5, he says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, set, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. And then in verse 16, he says, let the church not be burdened so that it may take care of those who are truly widows. You see, what Paul is saying here is that there are qualifications for those that the church is to make a point to take care of, and that there are those the church is to help and take care of, and there are those that the church is not to help and take care of. Now, please hear what I'm saying, and don't, I don't want to be misunderstood here, all right? Because sometimes I say things, and people walk out of here hearing half of what I said, and they say, Pastor said, we ain't supposed to help nobody who asks for help unless there's something really, 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 really... Okay, that's not what I'm saying, okay? What Paul is referring to here in this is a, the long-term, continuous support and help. He is talking about people whose needs are dire and require ongoing help. He's not referring to that once in a great while momentary need. 
He's not talking or referring to someone who needs a little help to get back on their feet, right? And then gets back to work. He's not referring to the occasional, you know, where someone needs a little bit of food to help get past a rough patch. He's not addressing that that one-time short-term need. As Christians, we ought to be quick to help those who have a momentary need. We should be, be willing to help when we can. When we can. But things are very different for those whose, whose momentary needs turn into an ongoing habitual need. When those needs are continuous, an ongoing need for food, an ongoing need for money to pay bills, an ongoing need to keep vehicles running, an ongoing need to be driven from place to place to place to place, an ongoing need to get things fixed around the house. It's just ongoing, persistent need. Paul is addressing those who are truly in a situation of ongoing need who have no other options. You see, when Paul talks about true widows, he's not talking about true widows versus false widows. He's not talking about women who've lost their husbands and those who didn't actually lose their husbands. He's talking about those widows who are qualified to receive the church's ongoing help and those who are not qualified for that ongoing help. Paul is saying some are truly destitute and needy and have no other resources, and the church is obligated to do what it can to take care of them. And there are those who are qualified for that, and there are those who don't meet those qualifications. It's about helping those who are qualified for that help. And there's an idea here that's been lost on the church today. Many Christians just think that you should help whoever, whenever, however, and for however long. We get in the habit of like allowing at times for people who have other options and resources to become leeches on our lives. And, and I don't mean this insensitively at, at all. I, I mean this sincerely. We all have a tendency and a soft spot for other people. And the church has allowed its emotions in this area to become the way that we actually operate rather than going to the Bible. We need to be careful to help the truly needy. And so Paul says, help the true widow. And then he unpacks for us the qualifications of who they are right, and who they're not. And so the, let's look at the qualifications, what they look like, and then we'll make some general principles. Because obviously, you know, there's... 2,000 years between then and now and how we apply this. Paul says, she who is truly a widow left alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So the first thing that we need to see is a true widow is someone who is left completely alone. She has no family. She has no children to take care of her. She is completely on her own, which means she doesn't have any other options. That, by definition, is being truly needy. When you have nowhere else to go, you have no other options. A person who's truly needy simply doesn't have anywhere else to go. On the other hand, Paul says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Paul's saying that she has children or grandchildren or living parents. She needs to first go to them for help. She needs to go to them for support. She needs to go to her parents and ask, can I come home? If she has adult children, she says, hey, I need to lean on you for a little while. 
Right? If she has adult grandchildren, hey, take care of grandma. Right? That they are to go to them first, not to the church. Why? Because the truly needy have no other options. They have family members. If they have family members, they have options. Now, after all the years that I have pastored this church, I have noticed that when people have need, oftentimes the first place they go looking is the church for help. Why? Because it's the easiest. It isn't, isn't the church supposed to be there to help anyway? Why don't I just start with the pastor? He's a nice guy. But then I do a little digging and I find out, well, why didn't you ask your family and your friends? I mean, do you have family and friends? Well, yeah. Did you ask them for help? Well, no. Well, why not? Well, because I don't want to inconvenience my, my mom. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bug her. But, but it's okay to lean on the members of the church, okay? The fact is, right, I actually had someone call one time for a family member. And she asked me if I would send someone over to this woman's house and check on her. Okay. Regularly. What? Well, yeah, I need somebody to go check on her regularly and then whatever she needs, if you just take care of her. Wait, 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 wait. hang on a second. Um, isn't this your mom? Well, yeah, it's my mom. That's why I'm calling you. Okay. All right. Well, then, then why don't you come take care of her yourself? It's your mom. Well, I, I live up here and she lives down there. Like, okay then why don't you move mom in up there with you? It makes sense that way you could take care of her that way, right? Because it's your, it's your mom, right? Oh, I can't do that. Why? Oh, that's just too inconvenient. I've got so much going on in my life right now, I just couldn't deal with that. Like I don't? I'm, I'm not trying to be incompassionate, but I mean, it's your mom! Those who are truly needy, Right? And who have relatives have options. I mean, those who are not truly needy and have relatives have other options. But the truly needy are the ones who don't have options. Notice Paul says, let a widow be enrolled right, for ongoing help if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would Paul give a specific age? Well, for two reasons. Number one, right, if they were young enough, they could remarry. If they were young enough, they could find another husband. In fact, Paul commands that they do that. He said, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households. Younger widows had that option to get remarried and become productive parts of their, their new family and contribute in their efforts and in return be taken care of. So the church didn't have to do that. The second, option, the second thing was is if they were young enough and physically able enough, they could support themselves by going to work which, by the way, is an expectation, which was an expectation of the early church. Everybody wants to go back to the early church and talk about, let's do things like the early church did. Well, that's how the early church did things. They believed that if you could work, you better work. And if you were young enough, they expected for you to work. In fact, a lot of people forget about the the whole dissertation that Paul gave on this in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says this, beginning in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. You see, idleness was not people who couldn't 
work. Idleness was people who were refusing to work. For you yourselves know you ought to imitate us because you were not, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this commandment. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I'm going to tell you, if there's an underquoted scripture in the entire Bible, it is that one right there. And, and, and I don't mean that to be mean. But the thing is, is we're going to build a theology of, of our understanding of God and how we're to operate as a church. We need to go to the entire scripture. Paul says, I'm going to read this again. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons were, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul and the church expected those who could work and pay their own way that they would do so. And that's why he said, if they're under 60 years old, they're probably capable of working, they need to do that. In fact, Paul says, refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Otherwise, what he's saying is they decide to become sexually interested in men, that they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. And then he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. These, these young women, if they were supported by the church and not made to work or get remarried, they just simply would sit around and do nothing and become idle and getting all kinds of drama. By the way, that should kind of sound familiar. Our culture and our government has created a generation of, of idle people who just refuse to work. People who just simply will do nothing except sit around and gossip and start drama and surf social media all day and play video games and look at pornography and say things and do things that they shouldn't be, be saying. That's, what's, that's what marks the inner city. That's what marks so many communities. I mean, that's what's marking right now with all this extra stimulus money that was given and the extensions of, of, um, of unemployment. People just, I mean, their businesses are begging people to come to work and they can't get anybody there. Why? Paul is saying that the church is to refuse to give long-term help to those who refuse to work. Paul is saying that the church is obligated to care for those who, who have no one to help them, who have no prospects of being remarried, and do not have the ability to make a living. That is who is qualified to receive long-term help from the church, which translates into then a few general principles I think we can apply to our world today. Number one, those who have options to pursue, those who have options we are to insist that they pursue those options. Believe me, I want you to understand, this is one of the most compassionate, most loving, generous group of people I have ever been around, but not any one of us in here are millionaires, right? We have limited resources, and those resources are stretched continually thin. Right? We are obligated 
to help those who have other options to pursue those options. We as a church have a responsibility to insist that those who have options actually pursue those options. If someone is physically able to work, we need to insist that they get to work. It doesn't matter if they don't just want to work. It doesn't matter if they don't like the kind of work that's available to them. We hear that a lot, right? Well, you know, I'm just not down with that kind of job. If a person can physically do some work, we need to insist that they do so, even if they feel it's beneath them. Paul says that if they refuse to work, they don't get to eat. And we need to insist also those who have family members, go to those family members first. Moms, dads, sisters and brothers, aunts and uncles, grandmas, grandpas, etc. They should seek help from their family members and not so much the church. Why? Well, it's the next principle. The principle that the Bible makes clear is that helping those in need is a family responsibility. This is not Pastor Sherman saying, this is what the Bible is telling us, that we have a responsibility as family members to help our own family members. Paul says it in this text, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. It is pleasing to God for families to take care of their needy relatives. Further, Paul says, and I'm going to tell you, this is the one that ought to make us sit up and take notice. He says in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'm going to tell you right now, that is a strict, clear punch in the nose by none other than the Lord Himself. It's a serious statement. Family members have a moral responsibility, a duty to God to take care of family members, especially those who profess to be in Christ. Again, Paul says this, he says in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her, the believing woman, take care of them. The church, let the church not be burdened so that it may take care of those who are truly widows. We, as a church, have a responsibility to insist that those who have other options pursue those options, and we have a responsibility to insist that family members take care of their own family, especially those who claim to be believers, because the the ones the church is obligated to help are the ones who are truly, truly helpless. But even with that, I want you to notice one more thing that Paul says. She who is a true widow left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. And then verse 9, he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years, having been a wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. You see, the other principle that, that we as a church must take in consideration when we are deciding who gets long-term help and who is truly needy is that we we prioritize believers. We are to prioritize those who are of the family. We are to prioritize those who are of the faith, who are in our church family. Now, I want you to hear me. This right here, if you look at the rest of the world, they're going to say that's counterintuitive because most people think that you're supposed to help people as a means to be able to get them to like you enough where they like Jesus and get saved. 
But that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures are very clear here. The Bible makes it clear in this text here that we're to prioritize those who are in the family, who, are, who belong to Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, I want you to realize when you hear all the commands to like love other people as, we, as, as Christ has loved us, those are for brothers and sisters. All those one another verses, those are about brothers and sisters. The entire New Testament prioritizes brothers and sisters over the outside world. Don't believe me? Then spend the next couple months and read through the entire New Testament and tell me I'm wrong. And then we'll, we'll talk. The Scriptures teach that we are to prioritize believers, but also notice that we prioritize faithful believers, believers that bear fruit. Notice that Paul says right, that the ones that the church is to help continue or, or have their hope in God and continue in supplication and prayer night and day, having been the wife of one husband or they've been sexually pure, right, and having a reputation for good works, if they've brought up children, have shown hospitality, have washed the feet of the saints, which is serving in any capacity, has cared for the afflicted and devoted them herself to good works. Paul is talking about helping people who are true believers, not somebody who just shows up and says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and then say, can I start getting, getting help? By the way, I've seen that too. I've been here nine years now. I'm going to tell you, I wish I knew today what I, I wish that I knew then what I knew today. I would do so many things differently, right? But we're to prioritize those who are truly believers. The church is to, to help people who are truly in need, but the order of priority goes first with believers. This is the framework, by the way, with which we should build all of our ministries of mercy. Right? We should begin with this model in our mind, no matter how we approach ministry. Now let's talk about application here and how we can apply this today. Because again, we're not living in a time where there are really 40 or 50 widows that the church are having to take care of, right? The fact of the matter is, is most widows in our community actually have resources, right? They're, they, were, they grew up at an age where their husbands actually had retirements and they were smart enough to put some money away, right? Pray for this next generation, right? But they were smart enough to put some money away that they can actually are self-sufficient to a certain degree. So with that being said, how do we apply this? Well, I think there are five things we can do to apply this. Number one, we absolutely, and hear me, we absolutely are to show the love of Christ by helping those in need. Let's just be super clear about that. We are to help those with short-term needs, and we are to help those with long-term needs. And we ought to be willing to help believers and unbelievers as we have opportunity and means to do so. We ought to shine the light of Christ in how we care for other people. If you were in Christ, you should be committed to helping other people around you to your best ability and to the means that God has given you, especially when God pierces your heart and convicts you. But that leads us to number two. We are to be wise stewards of the very limited resources that's been entrusted to us. We only have so much time in a day. That right there is probably, by, by the way, as a pastor, has been my greatest commodity and my most limited resource, right, is time. You only have so much time and you only have so much money. And because of that, we need to be diligent in how we, you know, how we rightly apply this. 
We must be diligent and have a right theology of the church. We need to be diligent and have a scriptural understanding. And we need to be diligent in being wise in how we seek to honor God with our decisions to help other people. Number three, we must have a healthy biblical expectation of the church's role in ministries of mercy. I think this is the one of those things that we as a church need to correct for, for the community around us and for other churches' sake as well. The church's primary mission is not ministries of mercy, which is contrary to the opinion of most people. Most people think, well, the church is there. Their primary mission is to help people. That is not our primary mission. Our primary mission, the church's primary mission, is to facilitate the Great Commission. Right? We exist that the gospel will go around the world, that the world would be saved. Right? And the church accomplishes that through three main objectives. We defend orthodoxy. We defend the truth. We declare the gospel. We speak the truth. And then we disciple believers to go out into the world to make other disciples. That they get out into the world and do the work of evangelism. By the way, what is their job? Right? To evangelize the lost, to baptize them and get them plugged into the church, and then to disciple them up so they go out and do the same thing. That's the mission and the objectives of the church. Now, as a byproduct of that mission, a byproduct of that is for us to help other people. It's for us to, to meet people's needs. And so we were to help people, especially those of the faith, especially the family members of our church, the truly needy. We're to help those in various ministries of mercy. And then beyond that, there are ministries of mercy that we can do as extras, extra things that we have resources for that, that the deacons typically lead. Like we as a church right now have a ministry where people have just been dropping a bunch of food off on us and we're giving it out as fast as we can give it out. Praise the Lord for that. We have that extra, right? right? Or the fact that, you know, um, one of our deacons, uh, Mike and his wife, have been for years, they have been for years making a point every summer to gather up used clothes and pass them out to kids in the community, Right? And that's an extra thing that gets done by the generosity of the people in the community. Praise the Lord for that, right? We certainly should pursue those things. But again, understand that the church's primary mission is sharing the hope of Christ. And again, those ministries should prioritize the most needy. By the way, that's why, I don't know if you realize, that's why we do so much for kids. I mean, if you notice what we do, a lot of what we do is centered and focused on children. Why? Because they're the most vulnerable. They're the ones that have the fewest options in our community. They're the ones who are at the mercy of everyone else. <clears throat> We've been doing this long enough to see that there are kids that have great potential and great opportunities, and it just seems like that there are people in their lives that do everything they can to, to sabotage them and get in the way. And so what we do is we love them kids, and we do what we can to support them and love them and, and take care of them. That being said, we as Christians need to realize that the church is not the God-given instrument to solve everyone's personal problems. The church is the God-given instrument to lead people to the solution to their greatest problem, and that is the fact that they are at odds with God and His wrath is upon them. And they can't fix it by their own actions, and their only hope is Jesus Christ. Next thing we need to develop is a biblical understanding of evangelism and salvation. 
And there are two things I think we need to understand really quick. Number one, if someone is in need, help them. Right? If they're hungry, feed them. If they're naked, clothe them. If they're mourning, comfort them. But, but do so out of love for them, not out of an agenda so that you, now I hope I have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now hear me, I want you to share the gospel with every single person, but that shouldn't be the primary motive for helping people. We ought to help people because we love them. I mean, think about this. If somebody was trapped in a car and the car is on fire, you don't make a decision whether or not you're going to help them or not, whether or not you're going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with them, right? No, that you're going to go help them because they need help. Then, when you have opportunity, share the gospel with them like you do with everyone else. We ought to love people and love them whether or not they ever put their faith in Christ. Number two, we need to remember that we're not their Savior. And again, I'm coming back to this. we got to remember we're not their Savior. You're not the one who brings them to faith. God does, which means right? you need to stop feeling obligated to jump every time somebody calls you and says jump. Right? Whether you give someone a ride at 2 o'clock in the morning from the ER or because you're exhausted, you make them wait until 8 o'clock the next morning, then you go pick them up. That's not going to be the determining factor whether or not they get saved or not. I've learned that lesson personally. Thank you very much. You're not their Savior. God is. Your ability to meet the needs of other people will not get them into heaven. And so it's okay. It's okay for you to finally say, you know what? It's time for you to take responsibility for your own life. It's, it's time for you to to do for yourself, right? I can't keep doing this. By the way, right? if that's the thing that causes them not to ever come to church, then they weren't ever really going to be part of the church, right? Which then leads to the number five, and that is we need, to, we need to remember that lovingly helping people to take responsibility for their lives is actually helping them. I'm going to say that one more time. Lovingly, people to, lovingly helping people to take responsibility for their lives is actually helping them. Helping people to get back on their feet and holding them accountable for solving their own problems right? and helping them to go to work to pay their own way and not accepting excuses might be hard. And it might feel unloving, but I want you to understand the loving thing to do is to help them get on their own feet. Helping people to stand on their own is actually helping them in a way that you can't even possibly imagine. In fact, it might be the most loving thing that you could possibly do for some people. And I'm just going to finish with an example of that. I had a brother. You guys, some of you have known my brother. If he stood up here, you would recognize quickly he's my brother, except he's shorter and skinnier, right? I'm better looking than he is, but that's a whole different issue. But my, my brother was that guy, right, who just, his life was out of control. He was, he was almost homeless, and he was living with my dad, and my dad finally had to push him out and say, look, you know, because he's a drug addict, and he's like, I, I can't keep doing this. And, my, and, and he had a daughter with him, with, with him, too. And my dad was even holding on a little bit longer just to keep, keep my, my niece around, you know, hoping that he could protect her. But then, you know, my brother moved out to the RV and then my dad got word, hey, you know, they're getting ready to come and arrest this kid, you know, and, you know, impound that RV. So my dad's like, you got to go, right? And my dad said, this is the hardest thing I ever had to do. You got to go. 
And my dad begged him, just let your daughter stay with me. And my brother, in his self-righteousness, was like, no, she's going to live with me. And so my dad had to basically force my brother's hand and take away from him the support that he had given him that enabled him to continue on in his lifestyle that was destructive. And then my brother tried to make it on his own and continued to fall and fall and fall to the point where he was absolutely homeless. He was riding around on a little bicycle and he was doing odd jobs for people who were, who were not paying him what they were promising to pay him. And he was on his way out. In fact, uh, he called me one day and wanted to talk. And when I finally got to sit down and talk with him, he was a shadow of his former self. He was, again, he was like five, I think he's like five, seven, but he might've weighed 120 pounds, maybe. I could literally see the features of his skull through his skin. That's how skinny he was. And he had the telltale sores all over him, you know? And he's sitting there drinking his coffee and his hands are shaking. And I just knew, right? He was on his way out. And I shared the hope of Christ with him. And that night he came to faith in Christ and he changed. He was an addict one moment and then he wasn't the next. And that became attested to by the fact that when somebody gave him an opportunity to go to work, he went to work and started supporting himself. And he bought his own car and then he got back on his feet and got his own place. And it just, one thing led to another. Now, there were people that supported him and helped him but he took the action to help him. But what we got to understand and remember is none of that's even possible if my dad didn't finally say, I got to let you stand on your own two feet because if you won't, I'm just going to be the cause of you, of, of you suffering. So what we have to remember, brothers and sisters, is we help sincerely. We got to remember that we need to walk in wisdom and how we help other people and that we need to be instruments in God's hand, not instruments in our own hands. And that we as a church are certainly going to find ways to help people in every possible way we can. But let us do so with our eye fixed on helping them to find the solution to their greatest problem, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might feed them today, but they'll be hungry tomorrow. But the word promises if they drink of that, that water that he gives, they'll never thirst. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 